When I grew up in a little small town in North Carolina, going to church every Sunday, I assumed that everybody around me, everybody in the world, had the same kind of thoughts about life that that my community did, and that is there were people who were concerned about the issues of sin and, and forgiveness, salvation, heaven, hell, and the like. But what I've discovered is that's not really the case anymore. There are people who truly believe now that when we die, that's it. We get put in the ground, our bodies rot away, there's no more consciousness, there's no more future, that's just it. We have those few years that we walk on the surface of this earth, we live, we die, and we're done. That's it. Now, admittedly, that's not a huge group. For most people, when they do surveys, they discover most people believe that we live, go on living after we die. Most people believe that there is some kind of a God, even though they may not agree with us about who that God is. Most people think life is eternal, at least in some sense, although they may define it a little bit differently. Today, we want to consider that. This is our last message in this series, Saved. And what I want you to ponder this morning is, if there's an eternal destination for each and every person on the face of the earth, wouldn't you want to know about it? If there was a place, if there were a place where you could go, that there would be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more pain and no more suffering and no more cancer, wouldn't you want to know about that? But if there were a place of eternal torment, a place of eternal separation from God, wouldn't you want to know about that too? And how I could avoid that in order to have the other. If you were to go from country to country and you were to take your own personal little survey, what you'll discover is that there are many ideas of how a person reaches this this eternal destination of peace and happiness and joy, which we call heaven, but not everybody does. Most people understand that in order to get from here to there, there's an an unwelcome prerequisite called death. But other than that, we might disagree on what the other side looks like and on what it takes in order to get there. So this morning, what I'd like us to consider is not what the rest of the world thinks about it, but what most of you grew up thinking, that there's a heaven, there's an eternal life. How do I get there? How do I get from here to there? I'd like to do that by actually sharing with you some of the ways people think we get from here. To there. Someone might say, you know, I figure I'm as good as most and maybe better than some, and I'm probably good enough for God to let me into heaven. Well, I want to stand up here and tell you this morning, it's not enough to be a good person. That's what you're counting on, your goodness. It's not enough to be a good person. Because if that is going to be your measurement of how you get into heaven, then the next question that should logically pop into your mind is, how good 
is good enough. Exactly where is the line drawn? Well, is it 51%? I mean, if you had a, one of the balance, balances up here, the scales, and on one side you put all the good things that you've done in life, and on the other side you put all the bad things you've done in life, if the good just barely outweighs the bad, is that good enough? Well, if you say, well, no, that's, that's, not, that's not nearly strict enough. It's got to be more than that. Where would you draw the line? 70%? It takes 70% to pass in most classes. You've got to get a 70. So maybe God's going to do a 70. You know, maybe that'll be it. If you go, well, maybe I'm not certain that that's going to work. Maybe I need to be a little better than that. Okay, well, what about a 93? That's what used to be an A in the, when I went to school. We didn't, get, we didn't get the luxury of having a 90 and get an A. We had to have a 93 to get an A. So, so if I get an A, maybe that'll do it. Or maybe no, maybe it needs to be like 99.9%. I mean, just, just a little bit of bad, tone in with a lot of good. Here's a real dilemma. Where do you draw the line if what you're counting on is your goodness in order to get to heaven? How good do you really have to be? And if you want to go search through the Bible and and find that answer, here's what you're going to discover. The Bible never tells you how good you have to be uh, on that percentage. The Bible tells you this. Be perfect. Now, I'd just like to have a show of hands here who's, who's lived a perfect life. Anybody want to say, hey, I, I've never done anything wrong. I've never lied. I've never stolen. I've never cheated. I've never had a bad thought in my life. I always obeyed my parents. Wow. So none of us measure up to the standard of goodness. When we compare ourselves to God, certainly we don't. This is what Isaiah 64 tells us. All of us have become like something unclean. And all, look at this. All our righteous acts are like polluted garments. All of, our, all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. Now, now did, catch this. All of our righteous acts are like a pile of filthy rags. Like you'd been slopping hogs all day and threw your clothes over in the corner. That is what not all of our unrighteous acts are like. This is what all of our righteous acts are like. You see, we've got this idea that somehow we can be good apart from God. And we can't. To be honest, even on my best days, let's face it. Even when I'm doing the right thing, sometimes I do it for the wrong reason, or at least I have mixed motives. I can be, come home and be super, super sweet to Nancy at the end of the day. I can come in and, and, and you know, ask her about her day and be engaged in what she's saying and actually listen to her instead of watching Sports Center. And I could be really engaged in what she's doing. And I could serve her. And I could say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, yeah, let me fix dinner. Let, let me take care of the dishes for you. Don't, don't just, you've had a hard day. Just, just rest. Boy, that sounds so altruistic. It sounds so good. It sounds so right. But let's face it. Guys, you know this. Most of the time, our motives are mixed. 
We're doing it for the right reason and a little bit for the wrong reason. Because we've got something we want out of it. We're trying to get a little out for ourselves. And that's what, here's the deal. Apart from Christ, everything that we do that we would consider righteous is is tainted. Tainted with sin. And so even on our best day, the best we can do is like a pile of filthy rags when it's compared to the 100% pure, righteous, holy God. There is the measuring stick. It's not am I better than this person over here. Am I better than that person over here. It's how do I rate when it comes to holiness in the sight of God. And I don't rate very well. There's a whole lot of sin in my life, a whole lot of mixed motives in my life. And I'm not perfect. And that, to be honest, is a standard. The Bible tells us that that all of us have sinned and come short, fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And all is a pretty expansive category. That Greek word for all, it means all. And that none of us are excluded. We're all lumped into that category of all. None of us is or can be righteous in and of ourselves. That's why we need Jesus. The Bible says of us, there's none righteous, no, not one. But the Bible says of Jesus, he's perfect, he's holy. That he had no sin. And yet he died a sinner's death. He paid a sinner's price. And he did that on our behalf. He died for we who are imperfect. We who are flawed. We whose motives are mixed. And some right, sometimes downright diabolical. We have a Savior who understands that. And who died for us anyway. How great a love that is. While we were still steeped in our sin. Christ died for us. Hebrews 4.15 we read. For we do not have a high priest. Who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who has been tested in every way we are. Yet without sin. What we need to realize is that those things that constantly trip us up and knock us back, Jesus withstood perfectly. He was tempted. Listen, when you read about his temptations in the wilderness, if you think after that Satan just said, well, that's it, you know, he's kicked my rear end, I better go on. No. What does it say? That Satan departed from him until a more opportune time you need to know this satan's always looking for a more opportune time to trip you up he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for who he can devour he's hiding around the corner waiting waiting to jump out at any moment jesus understood that because he came in the flesh But he endured it without sin. 
And therefore, he is our perfect sacrifice. In other words, we can't be good enough, but Jesus was. And so let's take that one off the table, that a person can get to heaven by being good enough. So perhaps what you instead say is, you know what, I'm religious, I go to church. I've gone to church ever since I was a kid. Well, my response to that is it's not enough to go to church. It's not enough just to go to church. Billy Sunday, that great revival preacher from years and years and years back, said going to church doesn't any more make you a Christian than going to a garage makes you a car. There have been many pastors who've used variations of that. Probably a more updated version is uh, going to McDonald's doesn't make you a Happy Meal. Just because you're in proximity to something that is considered holy doesn't mean that by osmosis that somehow it's going to soak in. In other words, we don't have a group of people who come in on Saturday night and who go to each of these chairs and they put some kind of holy ointment in these chairs so that when you sit on them, it just kind of seeps into you and you become Christian. That's not how it works. To be quite honest, you can be here every time the doors open. You can be involved in everything that's going on. You can be in church. You can go to church. You can do religious things and still be utterly and completely lost. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with going to church. I'm not saying, hey, you don't need the church. In fact, everything is right with being a part of the life of the church. We're told in Hebrews chapter 10... And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God calls us to be connected with the body, connected with the church. And so that's a good thing, but simply going to church has never, ever, ever saved anyone Having your name on a church roll is not the same thing as having your name in the Lamb's book of life. You do not become holy by being in church. Rather, going to church should be more than a religious habit. It should be an expression of your desire to gather with other believers to worship the God who saved us. Here's the deal. Some of you know this. It's inside you. You have a hard time not being here. You have a passion to gather with God's people to worship. You know that there is something unique. Yes, I can go out into the woods. I can go out in my boat. I can even go onto the golf course and I can worship. Sure, absolutely. But there is something special about the gathering of God's people that God uniquely inhabits, fills that gathering. Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am right there in the midst. Does that mean that he's not with us when it's just one? No. It just means that he is with us in a unique, special way. Because here it is, God never called us to be Lone Ranger Christians. He never called us to go riding out on the range on our own, on a horse called Silver. God never called us to that. 
what God called us to is connectedness. God called us to interdependence. God calls us to weave our lives together. And when we rip ourselves out of the fabric of the church, we do that not only to our detriment, but to the detriment of the body of Christ. We need to be connected. Now, I say that because I don't want anybody to misunderstand me when I say that going to church doesn't save you. See, just going to church, just being religious, it may not mean you're Christian. It may mean you're religious, and they're not the same. The Pharisees were religious. The Sadducees were religious. Buddhist monks are religious. Muslim clerics are religious. What is the definition of one who's religious? That means he or she follows the tenets of a religion, the practices, and at least mentally adheres to the statement of faith. Now, there's nothing wrong simply with being religious. It's just that if that's what you're counting on to get you into heaven, you got a problem. Because God didn't call us to enter heaven through religion. He called us to receive Jesus into a relationship. He is more than God. He is our Father. He loves us. And He sent His Son to die for us so that we might be in right relationship to Him. It is not about doing the right things. Should I tithe? Sure. Should I go to church regularly? Sure. Should I give to help the poor? Sure. Should I do all these things? Absolutely. But don't do those things thinking that God is checking the box off to see if you make it in. He will not ask you for your attendance record at Grace Fellowship when you stand before his throne. He will not ask you for your giving records when you stand before the throne. He will not ask you how many people you went out and fed when you stand before the throne. What he's going to want to know is, what did you do with my son? Now, our our relationship to him should affect all those things, our giving, our serving, our, our connectedness, but it can't replace those things. This is what uh, the prophet Isaiah wrote, Isaiah 29, 13, because these people approach me with their mouths to honor me with lip service, and yet their hearts are far from me, and their worship consists of man-made rules learned by rote. You know, Jesus also used these words. People come near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It means you can sing those songs that you hear on the fish. You can sing those songs that you remember from the old hymnal. You can sing those songs to the top of your voice. But that's not what's going to get you in. God's looking at your heart. So it's not about religion. It's not about being a good person. You go, okay, I understand. It's about believing in God. Well, I want to stand up before you and even say this. It's not enough to believe in God. That might knock some of you back a little bit. 
Pastor, what in the world are you saying? It's not enough to believe in God. The problem comes with how we define God. Because if you were to ask the average Muslim walking the streets of Saudi Arabia, do you believe in God whom they would call Allah? They would say yes. Is it the same? No. How do we define God? Now, obviously, we live in a culture where God is defined not by uh, the Koran, but instead, God is defined in our culture in a much more deceptive and equally destructive way. And that is, we take bits and pieces of this. What we learned in vacation Bible school, what we learned in Sunday school, we remember those pictures that have been tacked up on the wall. We take bits and pieces of this, and then we begin to mix in with this our own ideas of who God could be. Because when we read this, we go, well, you know, I don't like this about God, and so I don't think God's like this. So I'm going to ignore this, and I'm going to add something else. And you know, I once heard Oprah say, and I'm going to add that. And then you go, okay, and this, and this, and this. And what you end up doing is with this hodgepodge mixture that makes you really happy. You've created God in your image. It was never intended to be that way. We were created in God's image. And we, yet we turn around and we fashion a God to our own liking. In the Old Testament, that would be called idolatry. It's just that we don't have him in a physical form made of gold or silver or wood. We've got a more malleable God. A God whom we can manipulate, who will dance to the strings like a puppet. That's not who he is. You want to know who he is? He is the one who is eternal, who spoke, and stars came into existence. He is the one who, in love, reached down and scooped up the clay of the ground and began to form in a miraculous way the body of a man and who breathed the life, spirit, into that man. He is the one who set that man upon the earth and gave him a helper suitable, perfect for him and set them up in a perfect situation in a beautiful garden where they had no worries, no concerns, no disease. Sounds sounds like paradise, doesn't it? And he is a God who loved them so much that he said, I do not want you to be manipulated to love me back. And therefore, I will let you choose whether or not you will love me. And so I give you this one simple command. Don't eat from that tree. And by doing so, you'll show that you honor me and love me by living in this relationship, this right relationship with me. We know what happened. It's the same thing that happened when you tell your little five-year-old, you can do anything you want, but don't do that. 
your little five-year-old is going to be itching to do the very thing you told him not to do. Adam and Eve did the same thing. They were tempted, yes, but they succumbed to it. And they began to distrust the one who made them and gave them all that they had. Did God really say? And they began to doubt. And they took from that tree and they ate that fruit and everything collapsed. The whole world literally went to hell. And we suffer today because of that one decision. But you see, God was not surprised. He didn't gasp when Eve took the fruit and took a bite and gave it to Adam. Instead, God had an eternal plan. And that eternal plan was his son, Jesus, who is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And God said, even though they turn their backs on me and turn their hearts away from me, I love them still and I will redeem them. I will send my son to pay a price he should never have to pay so that they might be clean and pure before me, righteous before me. And that is precisely what he did. That is the God that we are called to believe in. Now you say, okay, well, I can give mental assent to that. I can acknowledge that that particular God exists Okay, does that get me in? Well, let's see what Jesus, uh, excuse me, let's see what uh, James said in James 2, uh, 19. He said, you believe that God is one, uh, you do well. The demons also believe, and at least they have the sense to shake in their boots. The demons believe, and they shudder at the thought of God. So wait a minute. If you get in just by believing in God, even believing in the right God, then it looks like the demons make the cut. No, we know better than that. So Jesus told his disciples this. You believe in God, you do well. Believe also in me. Why? Because we cannot believe in God without believing in Jesus. We cannot believe in the true God without believing in Jesus because Jesus is God. And if we separate God from Jesus, can, can you imagine, seriously, you get before God in heaven and you go, you know, God, I didn't have such an issue with you, but it was your son I didn't care much for. That's stupid. Okay, that's dumb. Instead, we come to worship the Lamb. Do you see what happens? Read the book of Revelation. They're falling down before the Lamb and worshiping the Lamb. Even Even as the disciples are in the boat, as Jesus performs a miracle, the disciples, they begin to worship Him. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, listen, cut that out, guys. Don't don't do that. When the angels showed up and people fell down and worshiped them, the angels said, get up. Don't fall down in front of me. But when they kneeled down before Jesus, he accepted their worship because he was worthy of worship. Believe in God. Believe also in Jesus. 
Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. What's the key here? Not what they did, but whether they knew, had this knowing relationship with Jesus. Because that's what causes us to do what we do. We can do those things apart from that knowing relationship, and it doesn't matter at all. Matters what you believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Just as we cannot make up whatever God we wish, let's be careful not to make up whatever Jesus we wish. By taking bits and pieces from scripture and stuff from our active imagination. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. He was more than just a good teacher, more than just an able prophet, more than just a noble role model, more than just an enlightened person. You see, Jesus is not who we want him to be, but he's exactly who we need him to be. He is who he is. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's not enough to just say, oh, I believe in God. You need to place your trust, your faith, your confidence in Jesus. The one who died on the cross paying the price for your sins and rose again on the third day to victory who opens the way to life. Don't settle for just being a good person. This world is full of good people who are going straight to hell. Don't settle for just going to church. Jesus said there will be some who say, Lord, Lord, but won't get in. Don't settle for just believing in God. Believe in the God revealed here who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a time coming when at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's the deal. No matter what you believe about life and death, time and eternity, whether you believe God exists or not, whether you believe that Jesus did come and truly died on a cross to pay the price for your sins or not, there will come a time when every soul, every soul, from every generation will bow their knee and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will do it willingly and joyfully. Others will do it reluctantly and full of sorrow. When you bow your knee, which will it be? I pray that it will be with joy and honor That you bow your knee before the one that you know died for you. That you know gave you life. And that you know holds your soul in the palm of his hand.